We're going to be returning to the book of Numbers, or the book of In the Wilderness, and looking at chapters 13 to 15 this morning. So we're going to be in Numbers 13 to 15. This is the section of Scripture where we have the report of the bad report of the spies of what they saw in the land and Israel rebelling, but why you see a, a group of people that, that don't believe in the Lord and don't trust in him, you see a very small group of guys that do, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, so the whole section isn't totally overshadowed by unbelief, but you see a believing remnant in that and a reminder of God's, the sacrifices and the offerings, and in particular the Sabbath, which points out the need for Israel to enter into his rest and that promise being open to all who will enter into it. If you've watched Fox News or known about it for any amount of your lifetime, you know that they've had a few different slogans for their news channel. One of them was fair and balanced. You laugh at that now. That uh, Later that turned into most watched and most trusted. And maybe the one we're most familiar with was the slogan, we report, you decide, which was recently Change to opinion done right, which is a matter of opinion, to be sure. And in Numbers 13 to 15, we see something similar where the spies report and the people decide, but they're deciding based on people who think that they're doing opinion done right, at least in their own eyes. And we'll see that there's also a, a minority of people that are unswayed by popular opinion, even though it's presented as fact, because they believe that God is faithful. They know his promises, and they know what he's promised to do in the future, and so they're unswayed by people's desires and passions in the present moment. And with that said, as we approach this text, I'd like to open us in prayer our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to look at it and to study it, but to know that as we study your word that it, in a way, studies our own hearts and shows us where there is unbelief there, but it also calls us to belief in you and shows us how faithful you are. We know that it is not hard to practice unbelief. We know that unbelief accuses you of not being good, and we know that that is not the truth, and pray that as we look at this text that you would give us a greater disposition to trusting in you, uh, a greater ability to see your goodness in our lives, and pray that above all things that your name would be honored as we look at your word together. Amen. As you begin looking at Numbers chapter 13, it begins... Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourselves men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, each one a leader among them. 
And so Moses does this, and you read their names of these 12 tribes and the men who go out. And in particular, some of the men that stand out in here are names like Caleb and also Joshua, his uh, old name being Hoshua, and then changed to Joshua, which his name is changed from He Saves to Yahweh Saves. And we see something that's repeated you know, throughout the book of Moses, is which, which is Yahweh spoke. You know, God is the speaking God who is telling you how things are. And he's teaching a worldview to these people and he's giving instruction and he's given a command that goes through his prophet Moses to send out spies. And notice how this section starts off in which it says, I am going to give the land. He's going to give this land to him. That is going to happen regardless of how people respond or what they think about it. God has promised to do that. And it says, you know, the, then these then were their names. And as you go through and read these names, there's certain associations uh, that happen with them, especially within the uh, original readership. I suppose it would be a, it's a similar effect to when we, we read names like Herod, Judas Iscariot, Pontius Pilate. Ooh. But then we read, you know, other names like Paul, Peter. Like, yeah. And it has a certain effect. It's the same thing when you read through this list. People will read it and like, oh, bad guys. Those, those, those are the bad report guys. Those are the guys that didn't believe. Oh, Caleb, good guy. Joshua, yeah, that was a good guy right there. The similar sort of effect with these names. So among all these, the names of these spies, there's an association with, of unbelief with everybody that's listed except Caleb and especially Joshua. You can see how his name's highlighted there in verse 16 as it ends with, these are the names of the men whom Joshua sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hoshua, the son of Nun, Joshua. So you're seeing this, this guy's going to be important. Pay attention to him. When you continue into that next paragraph, verses 17 to 20, there's instruction given for the spies, which is especially summed up there in verse 18. It says, and see what the land is like. This is what the spies were instructed to do. And whether the people who live there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. In that next section, 21 to 24, the spies, they carry out the instruction. In particular, in verse 23, it says, then they came to the valley of Eshkol and from there cut down a branch with single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs and the spies you see here they bring back that they're they're demonstrating that God's report of the place is true which is not exactly how they're going to report on it but they're demonstrating it and carrying this ginormous amount of fruit with them and in verses 25 to 29 the spies report after 40 days, which you know the number 40 is important in the Bible. There's a lot associated with that. 
And at the end of 40 days, this is verses 25 to 26, it says, Then they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days and went and came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So they end up coming back and saying, there's big fruit. They're going to go on and say, there's big people and they have big cities. So in a way, (laughs) it sounds like Texas. Yeah, everything's bigger in Texas. I hope that's not the land to which you're moving. I hope you're staying put, but. <laughs> and there's two reactions to the international news that you see here in the text. You first you look at verse 30. So you see Caleb, it says in verse 30 there. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we are surely able to overcome it. So Caleb isn't, he's not seeing the big fruit and the big people in the big cities and going, this is impossible. He's like, this is the place where God said we're going. We're going. We're able to do it because God has promised to do it and there's not another option. We're going in. But then there's the others. You see this in verse 31. It says, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. Now, these were the national news reporters, but they also forgot to report on how Yahweh had fought for these people in, in Egypt and how he had actually even specifically used the guy Joshua against Amalek back in Exodus 17 after Israel tested Yahweh saying, is Yahweh among us or not? So they had asked that question before and the way that the, the Lord showed that he was with them was go out with Joshua and I have given Amalek into your hand and you'll know that I'm with you by the fact that you're going to win this battle. Well, they didn't choose to put that in the news report with everything else. In a, in a way, they were very much like Eve. You know, they, they couldn't see God's goodness in the land. They could only see this thing where they thought God's holding out on us. They couldn't see, oh, he's given all, everything else <laughs> to us. He's given all this stuff in the land. They could only see, he's holding out on us. He's not with us. Uh, he's not good. They couldn't remember the big city of Egypt being destroyed or Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea. You know, nobody was saying, well, why, why can't God defeat these? These people are all smaller than Egypt. And God had no problem defeating Egypt, why should we be worried about the Canaanites and all the, the sons of Anak that live in this land? Now, the differences between these two reactions are not you know, optimism and pessimism, but rather the reactions are believing God's promises or not. When it comes to you know, even ourselves interacting with or reacting to the national news, Christians can sometimes differ on their views of how things are going to work out in the end. And they talk about it as, well, these people have an optimistic view and these people have a pessimistic view. 
But you see, it would be better to drop the, you know, our labeling of how things work out in the end as optimistic or pessimistic and center the discussion around what has God promised to do? That's ultimately what we want to know. Has he promised to bring his people into the land or not? And if he has, we should expect to enter into it. The real issue is about recounting God's promises and to see, look how he's been faithful in the past. Why should we expect him to be any different right now or later on in the future? Here we learn something about the nature of unbelief. Unbelief fails to remember God's faithfulness in the past. Unbelief fails to remember God's faithfulness in the past and to believe his promises in the present and going on in the future. Which you, you know, going back to the beginning of this chapter, and it talks about the land. It's the land which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. It's not the land that he might give to them. It's the land that he is going to give to them. When you come to chapter 14, we, remove, we move on from the, the report that's given to the rebellion and the righteous judgment of God, and you read in chapter 14, that all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or Would that we had died in this wilderness. And why is Yahweh bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This wasn't, you know, merely a a boo-hooing over the events and just kind of whimpering through the night. But this... As you can see, this was a riot and a protest. And what do you think was wrong with the popular opinion expressed in this protest that they were making? Would it have been better if they had died in Egypt or if they had died in the wilderness? And was it true that their wives and children would become plunder? Were they right in their opinion that it would be better to return to Egypt. It hasn't been that long since they had lived there. This was a, a, a recent, uh, in their history, that they had forgotten the hard slavery. But for some reason, the only thing they could remember was how good the food was. And I don't even know if it was all that good or that they even got to eat those things. I just. <laughs> you see what happened with the, the popular opinion in that day is they, they assume God doesn't know what he's doing. He, do, he doesn't know how good Egypt really was and he doesn't know how bad it is right now. Why has he done this to us? And when you think about you know, the Exodus event in itself, how should the Exodus have affected their view in this moment? Yeah, confidence. 
Like, these people are big, but they're smaller than Egypt. Like, we have no, no reason to be concerned about this. And when it comes to, you know, like wanting good food, like the, the spies who gave us the bad report just carried in a ton of good food from this place. It's like, does anybody see what's happening here? The problem with unbelief is that it, it's only focused on the now. Uh, I heard uh, one person put it this way. They said, unbelief is only a contemporary issue. Here, you might remember from last week, we looked at Psalm 106 a little bit, and it says, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and put God to the test in the wasteland. You see, they, they forgot God's exodus work. They forgot the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of land and seed and blessing, which, you know, if they, if they had remembered those things, it should give them hope to say, well, look at the deliverance that God gave us. Look at how he's fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But instead, they were swayed by the majority report instead of living out their theological heritage. You know, and so they're saying, well, this is, this, did you hear what was in the news today? It's like, well, do you remember what we believe as believers in God today? <laughs> you know, we so easily forget that. And in their now focus, the, the only thing they could, they could see was their cravings. Like, right now, I want this. And they were so focused on that that they, they, they couldn't see God has done this in the past and he's promised to do this and we could trust him. Therefore, we can deny ourselves and we don't have to live by our cravings. We can deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow the one who has called us to follow him. Unbelief doesn't know where it came from or where it's going necessarily. And it's not hard to practice unbelief because it's easy to forget the past and to misunderstand the future. You read of a people like this in Second Peter when they, they think, well, God's not judging us now, and every day has always been like that. God's never judged any, anybody, you know, ever. And it says they overlooked this one fact that since, you know, from the beginning of the creation, there was this time when God flooded the whole earth. He judged everybody. Not, not every day has been like a day where he's just being patient with you and not judging you yet. Therefore, he's also going to judge people in the future, and you can expect that. You're right that there are some things that aren't going to change, but it's going to be that God's not going to change in his holiness. God's not going to change in the fact that he actually judges people, even though you think, I've never seen him judge anybody in my life. He's still going to do it. Remember, he's done it in the past, even though you don't recall the past correctly. He's going to do it in the future, even though you're not thinking about the future correctly. Nathan Williams, in a blog article written on the Master Seminary blog, he, he wrote in, I, I want to call them articles instead of blogs. I'm still just not comfortable with that word. But it, it's a blog. <laughs> and it was titled, Stop watching the news. Your discipleship depends on it. And this is what he writes in there. Quote, The news lacks perspective and depth in its analysis of events and people. 
It sees on a surface level and lacks the distance that time provides to truly grasp the heart of a matter. With the attention span of a goldfish, it moves on to the next breaking story. Constant exposure to this form of media will shape you into a thin person who lacks perspective and the ability to think deeply about a subject. You will get angry and then quickly move on. The thinning of your soul that will take place will harm your spiritual life. End quote. You can see a similar reality with Egypt and that they were so focused on the now, they couldn't remember their deliverance from Egypt and they couldn't take the time to think on the depths of what God had promised to their forefathers, to Abraham and the promise of land and seed and blessing and the expectation that he would continue to fulfill that covenant going forward in the future. In response to the response of these people, you see in 14.5 that Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had sent out to spy the land, tore their clothes. What do you think that that communicated to the sons of Israel as they saw this reaction. Well, one, you can see that uh, this is an, an extreme <laughs> response, but this is also something that would have you know, caused them to have a flashback to, we remember another time when these guys fell on their faces and then what happened was Nadab and Abihu got executed. So they should be thinking, this is bad. It's like, why is Joshua tearing his clothes? It's like, we're about to have a funeral. But one thing we don't want to overlook here is that there is a believing remnant. Don't only see that there's a bunch of unbelievers. You're seeing Moses is believing. Aaron is believing. Joshua and Caleb are believing and they're caring about these people who are not. And you're, again, seeing two reactions to the national news. You know, one of them we saw in verse 3 where people are questioning Yahweh. They're saying, why is Yahweh bringing us into the land? But then there's this other response in verses 8 and 9. This is chapter 14, 8 and 9. It says, if Yahweh is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. But as for you, only do not rebel against Yahweh and do not fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has been removed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. You see here that what belief does is that it trusts in God, it trusts in what he's promised, it trusts in the reality that he's present and that he's with them, whereas unbelief question God, questions God with a doubt and an unwillingness to be corrected. Because you can see these people, well, Yahweh's with us. Like, well, we just don't see it that way and nobody else does. You know, nine out of ten people don't see it that way, Caleb. 
or eight out of ten, you know, with uh, Caleb and Joshua and the, the report of the spies, ten out of twelve. I got to get my numbers right here. <laughs> this text is repeated in Hebrews chapter 3 where it says for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end while it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me for who provoked him when they had heard indeed did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was angry for 40 years was it not with those who sinned whose corpses fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief so you see the the reason that they weren't able to enter which it wasn't because the people were so big and the cities were so big, and they just weren't able to beat the people. So the reason they weren't able to go in is because of unbelief. It had nothing to do with their uh, military ability. It had everything to do with uh, a heart contrary to God and his promises. And how was it that all these people responded to Joshua and Caleb. Well, this, this is how they respond. Verse 10 says, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And why, why respond like that? Because what they're seeing is these guys are false witnesses. They're lying about God and they need to be executed. I mean, how backwards is that? So we got to carry out judicial punishment on these guys because they're lying to us about God. But then look how Yahweh responds in the next half of the verse. It says, Then the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. This is kind of similar to what we saw last week when there was the tiff with Miriam and Aaron and Moses, and they get to bickering, and then Yahweh shows up and he says, you three, <laughs> over here, now, we need to talk. Well, now it's, you know, with the whole congregation of Israel, Yahweh shows up, you guys, over here, we need to talk. And specifically, he addresses Moses, and starting in verse 11, there it says, Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have done in their midst? I will strike them with pestilence and dispossess them and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Where do we normally hear that language of how long in the Bible? How long? Yeah, Revelation, Psalm, but it's usually somebody else saying, How long, O oh Lord? <laughs> you know, it's from our end. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to put up with people rebelling against you and not honoring your name, though you 
show immeasurable kindness to them and allowing them to, to live and you, you feed these people and they reject you. But what's unique here is Yahweh is the one saying these things, but what he's doing is he's, he's teaching us how to pray. You're going to see that's what he's, going to, he's doing with Moses here. He's teaching Moses how to pray. He wants a certain response out of Moses, and he's asking him questions to help him to, to see things a certain way. So he's helping Moses. See, these people are spurning Yahweh ultimately, not Moses, which is a lesson he's been learning Oh, being taught over and over and over, seeing the issues with these people don't believe him, and all of these signs done in their midst never made anybody believe ever. You see the heart of a people who would have ancestors who would later yell to another one named Joshua, which is Jesus in Greek, and they would yell, crucify him to the one who would be the one who came to bring them into the promised land. And you see what God wants of people ultimately in this, which he's discipling Moses in. You know, what is it ultimately that God wants? He wants faith in him. He wants people to believe in him. He wants people to trust in who he is and what he has said. But does signs do that? Do signs produce faith in people? Uh, what about really sound logical arguments or scientific evidence? You know, can that uh, give people a, a, new, a new heart in place of an unbelieving heart and make them believers? So, no, the, the signs can't do it. I mean, None of us have ever seen anything like the plagues or the event in, in the Red Sea. And the, and the people saw, they saw those things and they never talked about it, ever. It was like it just never happened. Never saw it, never heard about it. Don't know what you're talking about. They were totally blind to them. And so we see signs and evidence do not produce faith. So what, what is it ultimately that these people need if it's not better arguments, and it's not, yeah, yeah, new new hearts. You remember this in last week, and this is Numbers eleven twenty nine. Moses he saw the problem of an unbelieving heart, and this is how he saw the solution. He said, "Would that all the people of Yahweh were prophets, that Yahweh would put His Spirit upon them." So that's the only solution is that God would put his spirit upon these people and regenerate them into being believers. It's like that's the only possible solution to this. But we read there in verse 12 something that it, it sounds like there's a change of plans in a way where Yahweh says, I will strike them with pestilence and dispossess them and I will make you, that's Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than they so is God, is God changing his plan here? Now, he's not changing his plan, but he's getting Moses to think about his unchangeable plan. He's, so he'll go, wait, you can't do that. <laughs> That's not how this thing works. Remember what you said? <laughs> Which God didn't need to remember, but Moses did. And he's like, That's what I was trying to get you to think about here. God can't change his, his plan because he's the unchangeable 
God of Abraham. Uh, He is who he is, and he will be who he will be. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why did God say these sort of things to Moses? Well, ultimately, it was to remind Moses of God's name. Moses has lived through events like this in the past where people were given an immense privilege, like getting the Ten Commandments, that they responded with immense sin, like making the golden calf, which is met with an immense grace where Moses learns the glory of Yahweh, and he learns that part of his name is that he forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression, and Moses, it's all coming back. He's like, God's name, he's the one who forgives. What am I supposed to do? I'm going to pray for forgiveness (laughs) for these people, because God can't change. He has to carry out his plan with the people that he promised it to. He made a covenant with these people. He has to keep it, and so God is nudging Moses to be the mediator that he was called to be. And Moses mediates or he intercedes and he prays in Yahweh's name. Which when we read this and start in verse 13, it's going to sound a lot like Exodus 34 to you, which is the prayer that came after the golden calf incident. So let's pick up in 1413. But Moses said to Yahweh, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your power you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Yahweh, are seen eye to eye, while your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night." Now, if you put this people to death as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because Yahweh was not able to bring up this people into the land which he swore to them. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. So now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. What would you say is the dominating thing that motivates Moses praying here? Yeah, it's God's glory. It's about his name. God, think about how people are going to talk about you. Think about what Egypt's going to say. Like, everybody knows who you are on the planet. You're like, you show up in this ginormous cloud, and you show up in this huge pillar of fire. Like, this has not been done, like, in a little corner. Everybody knows about that. You just destroyed the world's greatest superpower on the planet and broke the world's economy because people aren't getting food like they used to out of Egypt. They know about you and that you brought this people up, but if you don't carry them all the way, then they're going to say, well, he just wasn't able to do it. He just couldn't pull it off. It's like, God, is that how you want to be remembered? How many of you have ever said a prayer like that in your life? It's like, God, you can't 
It can't be like this. People will not think about you rightly. Yeah, so all, all the questions were designed to, to get Moses to think about God's name and to pray in his name. Now, how did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? What was their first prayer request? Hallowed be your name. That's a prayer request, but it's the first one, right? That's exactly what Moses is doing. His, uh, his first request is, you know, hallowed be your name. You know, your reputation be held up. But he also has that prayer request of, you know, forgive their debts, right? We hear that also in the Lord's Prayer. But it's based on God's name. He says, well, pardon them according to your reputation. Uh, pardon them according to the fact you said that you forgive people. You said that you're the God of loving kindness, So do that. Do that for these people because that's who you are. You have to do it because this is who you are. In contrast to Israel's unbelief, we see Moses' belief here where he's echoing what he learned back in Exodus 34. And we see this is what it is to pray in Yahweh's name or to pray in Jesus' name. You know, it's not just some phrase that we know this is where the prayer ends. He said in Jesus' name, we're about to, to nod or <clears throat> do that thing and go on. But instead it's, you know, praying according to his name, what he's like, and according to his will. That's the idea. Because his name is who he is and what he, ha- what he wills in the world. So when we pray according to Jesus' name, we're praying, you know, according to his nature or his reputation, his glory, and his plan being done within the world. Which this should, this is instructive for us in prayer. This is how we're to pray. You know, ultimately we want God's name to be honored, and he honors his name through forgiving people and judging people. Like you see that. He says, he'll, he'll by no means clear the guilty, and we've talked about how the concept of salvation, how God glorifies him, involves both. We tend to think about salvation as just the deliverance thing, but when he delivers, he also destroys. Now, God wants to make known that in his holiness and in his salvation, he delivers and he totally destroys all enemies. He totally destroys the old life. And back in chapter 14, verse 20, you see God's response to Moses' prayer. So Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. What do you think is significant about that statement? So what about 
right? Yeah, Genesis 3.15. Yeah, the victory of the seed, which it, it very much ties back into that section in Scripture. But, you know, first consider, he, he said he's going to pardon them according to the one who mediated for him. And we know that, you know, Moses is you know, a shadow of Christ to come who would be the, the greater prophet who would intercede and accomplish the salvation of a people. But you also see that that iniquity is going to be visited on future generations. and that There's going to be consequences for their kids for how they sin and that they're going to be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years. And so even though they're pardoned, they're still going to have the consequences of their sins and it's not only going to affect them, it's going to affect a lot of other people. But you also see God echoing his creation purpose there. All the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. So, well, why is that? Well, because there's a seed who's going to come from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's how God's going to reclaim everything that was taken back in the garden. Land that was taken, restored. People that was taken, adopted back into his family. The curse that was brought, reversed and turned into blessing. He's going to fill the whole earth with his glory, which was always his plan from the beginning. The unbelief of some of the sons of Israel, as you know, continued throughout the ages to the day when they cried out for the death penalty for that seed of the woman that was promised to come, namely Jesus of Nazareth, who was one of their own. And Jesus, who is grace and truth, similar to Moses, he prayed while they were crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing. And as we think about that and how Israel, they didn't understand who they were rebelling against. Such were some of you, right? There was a time when we didn't understand the Christ that we were rebelling against and the grace that he had shown to us in keeping us alive and giving us life and breath and everything and food and clothes. And he let us live in his world, though we, though we never gave him thanks for anything that he had given us to enjoy in this life. But what made all the difference was that you were prayed for. You were prayed for on the cross of Christ when he interceded for all of those that the Father had given to him to save. He took the death that you deserve upon himself to satisfy God's justice so it would be a just forgiveness. We wouldn't just say, you know what, I, I'm a good judge, I can just wipe it under the rug and maybe nobody will find out that I just did that and didn't carry out justice. He says, no, I'm going to carry out justice, but somebody's going to take it in your place. Somebody's going to pay your fine for you so I can demonstrate that I'm a just judge, but also my loving kindness and that I can forgive people who don't deserve it. In verses 22 to 25, we 
I'll read those verses there. It says, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I have done in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his seed shall take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. You see here that how, how you respond to God's word has consequences for your life. Those who tested God in the wilderness will be executed in the wilderness. But you also see that there is this guy who trusted God, and there was something different about him. Caleb, what was different about him? He had a different spirit. So, and you notice that comes first in order before you know, it mentioned that he fully followed him. It's like, well, why did Caleb fully follow God? He had a different spirit. It's like that's where it started. The, the, it's the spirit that changes everything ultimately and therefore, he would inherit the promise of going into the land. And it says he had entered it. He had entered it by faith because he believed that he was going into that land and that him and those who were of the seed who believed that would be joining him. Caleb is a picture of what Israel was supposed to be like. But you also see there's consequences for those who didn't believe the Lord and spoke against his name. And it, this is the consequence. It says they set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, which if you look at a map, this is the wrong way to go. <laughs> this is backwards. You're like, is, okay, Canaan's northeast, but we're going southwest. This is wrong. So it's like, okay, here's a consequence for you and your children the, which is, you're not doing a pilgrimage to Canaan, you're wandering in the wilderness in circles instead. So they don't look like a pilgriming people, but a wandering people in their sin. For their wandering in the wilderness, for 40 years you see you know, consequences built out, 33 to 34, chapter 14. I'll start in verse 32, it says, but as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses come to an end in this wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition." So you remember their claim was that he wasn't for them but against them. He says, you're going to know what it's like for me to be against you. When you said that I was against you when I was actually for you, their wish becomes a reality and that they said, would that we had died in the wilderness. He's like, you're going to get that. As even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. This is back in verse 29. 
And again in verse 31, he says, well, why, why this? He says, so that they will know the land which you have... Oh, this is uh, the blessing going on to their little ones. God, God's promise would also remain a reality in contrast to the fact that they're the corpses of the wilderness generation would die there, but God would keep his promise to their kids. This is verse 31. Your little ones, however, who you said would become plunder, I will bring them in so that they will know the land which you have rejected. So he's demonstrating your unbelief was invalid at absolutely every point. You gave this bad report. You believed this false thing against my promises. They're actually going to go in the land just like I said. You guys aren't, but they're going to go in, and they're not going to be plunder, but it's because you rejected the land which I gave to you. And God is sending a message here by executing an entire generation in the wilderness. What do you think is the message that God is sending to these people? I think in the beginning of this book, it really emphasized God's holiness. How is God upholding his holiness here? Yeah, and, right, and righteous judgment. He's saying, this is how holy God is. Uh, he will kill you if you don't honor him. It talks about this reality in Jude Verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Which is interesting. It says Jesus delivered them out of Egypt uh, there in Jude. Because like, well, who did it? Jesus did it. But don't overlook the fact that he destroyed those who wouldn't believe in him, who wouldn't honor him, who would not have faith in him. And in verses 39 to 45, what you read there in that, that section is a, a taste of what it's like to not have Yahweh with you. He gave him a, a hint of that. We'll just read verse 43. He says, For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following Yahweh, and Yahweh will not be with you. He says, I'm going to let you know what it's like to actually have me not with you. Because when you questioned me on this the first time, I had you go in and defeat these people. You asked me the question again. Well, now I'm going to let you see what it's like when I'm not with you. So go out and fight them and see what happens. But as this goes on, chapter 15 seems to take a very stark turn. It says, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of your places of habitation, which I am going to give to you, then make an offering by fire to Yahweh, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or as a freewill offering or in your appointed times to make a soothing aroma to Yahweh from the herd or from the flock. Now you notice there in that verse, it doesn't say if you enter the land, if you are able. Right? It says when. 
And what's interesting in all of this, you know, this is just on the other side of God says, I'm going to pardon these people. But and what happens is you see, he really had pardoned them. He doesn't just keep haranguing them about what happened in the past. He's like, all right, you're pardoned. Let's move on. When I give you the, let's go back to my promises, okay? <laughs> and you're seeing his, his judgment is being balanced out with the promise of rest. And he's demonstrating a, a grace to these people and saying, when you enter the land, he says, I'm going to give it to you. He says, when that happens, and he's talking to these future children, the, then you can enjoy you know, the giving up of the sacrifices that were instructive toward how their devotion to God was to be enjoyed in him. The, they're going to be able to enjoy that life in the land of celebrating the grace of God who would give them deliverance from their enemies, salvation for their souls, a land to live in, and lots of awesome fruit. But going on in chapter 15, when you see verse 14, it talks about not only the Israelites, but it says, you know, and if a sojourner sojourns with you and one who may be among you throughout your generations and he offers an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to Yahweh, just as you do, so shall he do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and one for the sojourner who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations as you are, so shall the sojourner be before Yahweh. He doesn't make any distinction between you and the Amalekites. He doesn't make a distinction between you and the Canaanites. Uh, they can become a part of this salvation and this family and be a part of it as well. They can become a part of the same worship and become children of the same God. This is a reminder that God's plan of salvation was always for all of the nations. And it's also you know, echoed again there in verse 18 when he says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I am going to bring you, then it shall be that you eat of the food of the land. You shall raise up a contribution offering to Yahweh. So now we have sons of Israel plus sojourners that are going to be inheriting this land because they found, they found pardon in the God of loving kindness and grace. In verses 32 to 41, there's a reminder here to enter into God's Sabbath rest or die. It comes back to the Sabbath. It was, which the Sabbath itself, remember, this was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. And what it read on the sign was, you guys don't live in God's rest and you need to. It was a continual witness against them that they were outside of God's rest and needed to enter into it. But you remember the whole tabernacle worship, you know, displayed that where, you know, God's in the tabernacle, the priests are outside that, and there's a fence around that, and then the people are outside of that. You know, they're not in the tabernacle, but there's a way that they can be connected to God through priest and sacrifice and enter into God's rest. And they were to, they had these tassels that they were to wear, which would remind them of God's commandments. 
and you see this uh, in the last uh, paragraph there, 37 to 41, we'll read that. It says, Yahweh also spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. This is kind of like an early form of, you know, like in First John, the desires of, you know, the, the eyes and the flesh, pride and possessions and status and, you know, something that's antithetical to, you know, Disney and following your own heart. He says, don't do that. Don't follow your own heart and your eyes and how you're seeing things. He says, so that you may remember this is the problem. They didn't remember certain things. So that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh your God. And this is how they were to live. Like Yahweh was their God because he is and there isn't another all glory belongs to him, and he won't allow anybody to give it to another. They were delivered by Yahweh to belong to him, to serve him only, and to live by every word that proceeds from his mouth. They were to live by the word of God and trusting his promises. When God's word comes to us, it's not like the Fox News slogan, we report, you decide. Rather, it comes to us, he promises, believe or die. The issue you see here is people either live in unbelief, which despises God and gets his judgment, or belief which honors God and demonstrates his grace in their life. It's either death in one land or life in the promised land. And as you know, even after being redeemed, it's not hard to practice unbelief. You know, in the moment when you have a, a craving for things to be different than they are, to all of a sudden forget that, that God has always been providing for you. You know, on that day when you think, I have no idea how we're going to make it. It's like, well, have you ever not made it any, any month, any year in your life ever? It's like, well, no. So why... Why am I worried about this day? Well, because anxiety adds so much to my life and just makes it so much better. So it doesn't add anything to you. It doesn't give you a, another day, better health, more money in the bank account. It doesn't do any of those things for you. But there's that change of perspective where we have a, a, a peace that surpasses understanding. When other people, they, they look at you and they're saying, well, why isn't all of your hair falling out right now? It's like, because God has been gracious to me. <laughs> but that does happen to, to some of us. This, this passage is a reminder to be grateful to God and to see his goodness, which requires, we have to look in the past, which we look at as past faithfulness throughout numbers. His faithfulness not only to deliver, not only to preserve, but his faithfulness also to judge 
Would you just say, this is not going to be a good idea to be ungrateful to God. It's going to have consequences. And there's something about that in which, you know, when you're a little kid, you learn that and you do something you shouldn't have and your parents just look at you and then the back of your, your pants start to sting a little bit and you're like, maybe I should make a different decision right now. It's kind of that sort of effect. This passage is a, a warning to us to not give in to the cravings of now. It talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10. We've looked at that passage several times. It says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So when I look back at Numbers, we're you know, we're, we're reading ourselves, you know, or you could say the scripture is reading us. We're not just reading about a people that we could not relate to. <laughs> you know, we're very much looking in the mirror and you should be going. Provision and his guidance in these ways. You know, it's different setting, but in principle, I do the same things. And I need the same sort of deliverance. We need to, as we study these things, to de develop and cultivate a heart that it, it trusts God, or you could say a disposition. So in the moment when the, the heat of trial hits, we have this disposition that starts with, I trust God. I start with, God is good. You know, I start with a prayer of thanksgiving before I start talking through how we're going to deal with this thing that's very <laughs> uncomfortable right now and I'm constantly having to deny this feeling in my gut that my whole life is about to fall apart because what my gut is saying is not true with who God is. We need to believe in God's good purpose and promise that he is going to fill the earth with his glory and the moment that I live in is so that that can be happening, so that I can be showing that God is good. It's good to follow him even in this circumstance. And he's especially demonstrated his goodness toward what he did on the cross of Christ when he forgave sinners like ourselves who have been ungrateful to the good God who has given us our lives. This section in scripture that we're in in Numbers is very much talked about in Hebrews 3. And I just want to close in reading Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 as a final exhortation to us. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us to know how to encourage one another today, because this day is indeed still called today, so that you would help us to express thanksgiving in you and to not have a, a a feeling of lack of trust in you or to articulate such things from our mouths, but we would truly have hearts that rest in you and mouths that speak of that rest and that you would help us to help one another in that regard, that in our 
fellowship, that we would be softened by your grace and not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We thank you that you are indeed with us, that you are among us, that you are helping us and you help us through one another. Amen.